2: The F-150 truck has been America's best-selling vehicle since the early Reagan era. The Ford engine's deep growl remains as evocative as one of the actor president's famous one-liners. It's also thirsty, of course. gets half the miles per gallon of the top-selling cars in China and Europe. America's affection for trucks began in the post-war period, when car makers adapted military assembly lines for commercial use. To capture a growing suburban clientele, Ford refurbished the cabin of its F-Series to include handsome upholstery, sun visors and an ashtray. But Ford is no longer America's most valuable automotive company. Tesla, the electric car maker, is now worth more than the big three Detroit firms combined. Last year, Ford unveiled an all-electric F-150. In the promotional video, the company's chief engineer, Linda Zhang, invites sceptical Ford superfans to watch it in action. The prototype tows 10 double-decker railway cars. The engine remains inaudible. Can Joe Biden convince the rest of America it could be this easy being green? This is Checks and Balance. I'm John Priddo, The Economist's US editor, Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, can America decarbonize fast enough? Power cuts across Texas this week have exposed a crumbling energy infrastructure, America lags behind other major economies in reducing emissions. Joe Biden has the best chance to push for meaningful climate change action for a decade, perhaps the last before catastrophic levels of warming become irreversible. But America's energy politics are fractious. What can the new president get done? In this episode, we'll hear from John Kerry, Joe Biden's climate envoy, the leader of Sunrise, a youth movement pushing for radical action, And from West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin, whose vote will be crucial in passing new laws. With me as ever to discuss all of this are Charlotte Howard, The Economist's New York Bureau Chief, and John Fasman, the US Digital Editor. Charlotte, how are things your end?
1: I'm fine. It's snowing again in New York. um, But we have power unlike so many people in the middle of the country. So I'm doing fine.
2: Yeah, I feel really bad. Idris decided to head down to Texas. He had a week off. So he thought he'd head down to Austin and check it out and has been, I think, snowed in with no electricity and no heating. So some some break for him. Um, John, how about you? How's your week been? My week has been okay.
0: Um, it is snowing here. My car yesterday failed its emissions inspection which as a Jewish car owner is just a deep sense of shame. I mean, a B plus is one thing, but to fail is just, I can't live it down. Um, But other than that, we're fine.
2: Uh, Is this the famous Prius? How does the Prius fail an emissions test? You don't
0: rotate or replace the tires for about nine years and then you bring it in and the mechanic says, how are you still alive?
2: Well, emissions tests are the topic of the week. Charlotte, you've got a cover of this week's Economist all about decarbonizing America.
1: Yes, it was strange timing On Friday the 19th, as our podcast goes live, America is set to rejoin the Paris Climate Agreement, and Joe Biden really wants to recover some of America's lost influence on the global stage. But this week also, of course, brought a big reminder of the consequences of America's inaction to date. You had this extreme weather in the middle of the country combined with poor planning for the electric grid, inadequate interstate transmission lines, all kinds of mixed up incentives for the people providing electricity generation. And it was just a reminder that America faces a really big challenge as it tries to both decarbonize its electricity system and make it more reliable. And that failing to do so can have really dangerous consequences for all those people who are out of power this week.
2: Well, as you're cover story this week makes clear one of the most important things America needs to do to decarbonize is invest a lot of money in its electricity grid. This week's Lexington column is also about climate change indirectly. It's a profile of John Kerry, the former senator and secretary of state, who has a new job as America's climate envoy. Our Lexington columnist and Washington bureau chief James Astill spoke to Kerry before sitting down to write that profile.
3: In my judgment it is the last best hope for the world to come together to get on a defined, accountable, transparent pathway to reduce emissions in a way that keeps alive the prospect of only a 1.5 degree warming and that keeps alive the notion that by 2050, we could have net zero carbon economy. It's obviously a very big lift we're not on a good track right now. We have an awful lot of uh, work to do. The United States has its own credibility gap to make up for.
4: Can you just sort of spell out to what degree your progress is going to be contingent upon US domestic progress on this issue?
3: I think it's very significant because of the absence of the United States over the last four years. You can't just come back in and say okay we're here without a demonstration of good faith regarding the things you're willing and prepared to do president biden has put together an extremely ambitious important down payment by the united states on the efforts we have to make here at home and after the covid legislation has passed the infrastructure build-back-better component will be put on the table. That will include components that reduce our emissions and build our resilience and capacity to deal with climate.
4: Will you be very involved in that domestic effort? Obviously, you're a veteran of the Hill, of the Senate.
3: I'll be deeply involved in trying to uh, broaden the base of support in our, in, in our country and abroad for the actions we have to take. When I was in Washington for the inauguration, I uh, saw a number of Republican colleagues who came up to me and expressed uh, a real interest in trying to work on the issue. There's a growing awareness that we need to do this. I mean, after all, we have seen very, very large expenditures here in our country. You know, in 2020, we experienced a record-breaking 30 named tropical cyclones. And setting another record, twelve of those storms made landfall in the United States, uh, and then and, and, and we spent around a hundred billion recovering from natural disasters just in twenty twenty.
4: What is your sort of personal stake in this issue? You've done big jobs, obviously, Secretary of State in the past. How how do you feel about this job in particular?
3: Well, I've been involved in this uh, particular issue for a long period of time. I mean, I was in Rio at the initial Earth Summit. I was in the Senate when we heard Jim Hansen warn us in 1988 this was happening. Through the years, uh, I've been to many of these negotiations and meetings, and I've watched while the efforts have grown to deal with it, but never been sufficient. And so I view this as... uh, a major opportunity for the world to come together and and really be serious about it. And as a grandparent and a parent and somebody who has always cared about our generational responsibility regarding the environment, I view this as a critical moment where we either get people on the road to getting the job done or we take part in one of the human history's greatest moments of failure, which will have drastic, dramatic negative consequences. I refuse to certainly willfully let that happen.
4: The metric of your success is going to be restoring American leadership and thereby pushing the world onto a 1.5 degree trajectory, which should become I apparent yeah, in the frame it quite
3: that way. I mean, restoring America's leadership is not the goal. The goal is to get the job done and climate. And if in the doing of that, our leadership and our participation earn some respect back, great. But the goal is to get the job done and to step up and work with other countries, uh, effectively in order to do that.
4: And, and the goal is 1.5 degrees. That's, that's how you're thinking about it. The
3: goal is to keep alive. In this decade to use this decade as the decade of advancing ambition sufficiently that we keep one point five alive and that we also lay out a roadmap to net zero by twenty fifty or better or sooner.
2: Well, we're going to change the format of this podcast a little bit. Ordinarily, we all pepper each other with questions. But given this is Charlotte's special subject, it's going to be like the quiz come early. John and I are just going to ask her a bunch of questions. And Charlotte, I'm going to go first. There was so much interesting in that Kerry interview, but I wanted to start by asking what you thought about the language that he uses about this being America's last chance. Because on the one hand, I think... That's somewhat supported by the science, and it's appropriate in creating the sense of urgency required to get stuff done. On the other hand, America has missed a bunch of chances on climate change in the past. And I worry a bit that that language of last chance can kind of lead to sort of a feeling of hopelessness if things don't go according to plan this time, if you don't get ambitious climate legislation through the Senate, you know, Americans might just give up and say, well, we've missed our last chance and now the planet's just going to fry and there's nothing we can do about it.
1: I understand that concern. I also think that it's okay to use the language of last chance for a few reasons. One is that you hear Kerry talk about how long we've known this is an issue, right? Throughout his very long career in the Senate, his time as a Secretary of State, it's not been a surprise that there needs to be action to curb the rise in global temperatures. What has been more surprising is America's extraordinary abdication on climate throughout its recent history. Um, And Donald Trump obviously is the most remarkable example of that because he pulled out of the Paris Climate Agreement. He didn't deliver money that America had promised to help poor countries deal with climate change, all of the things that he did domestically to try to undermine uh, regulations that would curb emissions. So he's obviously a big example. But before that, it's not like America's record was so stellar. Congress hasn't considered serious climate legislation since 2009. George Bush declined to implement the Kyoto Protocol, you know, on and on. And the reason why I think it's okay to talk about this as a crucial time when America could take action is because it's pretty hard to control the White House and both houses of Congress at the same time. It doesn't happen very often. And the truth is that you have one party that really does want to take action on climate and another party that continues to dig in its heels. And there are, as you heard, some Republicans, an increasing number of Republicans, who say, both in private and a few in public, that climate change is real and the federal government needs to do something about it. But it is very, very hard to get legislation through. Action should be taken now. That doesn't mean if we don't act now that we shouldn't act later, but it's going to become much harder politically later, and it actually will become much more expensive later. The longer you wait, the harder it is to try to reach net zero, to try to avoid... The worst impacts of climate change. So it is in America's interest and the world's interest politically, environmentally, financially to act sooner.
0: So let me drill down a bit on something you said. The last time the US passed climate legislation was 2009. Um, so we've been standing still here in America. What has the rest of the world been doing?
1: Um, so to clarify, that's the last time America considered serious climate legislation, which was the Waxman Markey. Cap and trade bill, and the Senate abandoned it, even though Democrats controlled at the time the White House, the House of Representatives, and the Senate. It was deemed just too politically toxic, and people were worried about the Tea Party, so it didn't move forward. What has happened in the intervening decade is a lot, both internationally and domestically, actually just outside of Washington. So, of course, there was the Paris Climate Agreement, and you have countries setting targets for reducing climate emissions. But as important, you've seen countries pass policies, whether it's carbon pricing, Europe has its emission trading scheme, which is the biggest and most advanced system of carbon pricing in the world. But also there's regulation and industrial policy through investment to try to position governments and countries for a new clean energy economy. And as I wrote about in a story for us in September, China really has shown how aggressive one can be in pushing towards an electrified future. So it is by far the dominant manufacturer of solar panels and batteries. It's invested in mines for essential minerals for the energy transition around the world. It's developing nuclear power. There's a lot of activity going on outside of the United States. And America doesn't yet have a big comprehensive federal plan. It hasn't really done much on the federal stage in Washington to try to deal with climate.
2: Charlotte, why do you think America is such an outlier internationally on climate change? I mean, if you think the last couple of hundred years of technical innovation, America has been at or close to the cutting edge in everything from air travel to space travel to the internet, computing, medical advances, but also advances in business models and you know, things that people think about a bit less when they think about innovation. And climate change, low carbon technology just seems to be a really big exception to that I mean, I suppose you could point to Tesla as one American you know, low carbon success. But overall, as you say, the running is being made in Europe, in China, not in the US as far as I can see. Why do you think that is?
1: Well, a few things. I want to give credit where it's due in that states have been much more aggressive than Washington in trying to move things forward. More than half of states, American states, have some kind of clean energy standard. And you do have America's national labs and all kinds of entrepreneurs who are working on this. But more broadly, in the sense of trying to really position America strategically for a cleaner economy, I think there are a few reasons why America is a laggard. One is that America has a huge oil and gas industry. China is dependent on imports of oil and gas. So it has a real interest in trying to electrify its economy more quickly to reduce its dependence on foreign suppliers. And Europe too, they see a strategic interest in becoming more independent, less dependent on imports of Russian gas. That's one reason. But I think more important reason is America's unique political system. So there are a few things that really conspire to make legislation in Washington, very, very difficult to pass. One is that you have Senate filibuster rule, which means that you need 60 votes in order to get legislation through the Senate, practically. So that means that the minority party can block any big bill. The other is the Senate gives disproportionate power to small states. So the two people who chair the Senate Energy Committee are John Barrasso from Wyoming, Republican, and Joe Manchin from West Virginia, a Democrat. Those are two coal-producing states. Their combined populations are smaller than the population of Brooklyn. So you have these two enormously powerful senators who represent a very small fraction of the American population, and they therefore have influence over what does and doesn't get through the Senate.
2: OK, thanks, Charlotte. We'll talk a bit more about what America ought to be doing in just a moment. But first, the usual reminder, if you're enjoying this podcast, then please do subscribe to The Economist if you don't already. You'll find the best offer at economist.com slash USpod. Charlotte's briefing on American energy markets is on the cover this week. There's a fascinating piece on the science of puberty blockers, and our graphic detail page looks at inbred monarchs. Economist.com slash USpod is the link to subscribe. It's in the notes for this episode. One of the most eye-catching political movements to emerge in the last couple of electoral cycles is Sunrise. It's a youth movement that puts pressure on politicians to address the climate crisis. Varshini Prakash is the executive director of Sunrise. She's contributed to a book called The New Possible, Visions of Our World Beyond Crisis. I've been speaking to her about her work with the Biden campaign.
5: I'm 27 years old. We started planning for Sunrise when I was 22. It's only been five years, but I feel like I've aged like 20 years in the last five years. Um, In many ways, I see my generation as the climate generation. There hasn't been a year after 2000 that wasn't one of the hottest years on record. The most poignant memories for my childhood or adolescence were witnessing Hurricane Katrina demolish communities in, in New Orleans or Hurricane Sandy or ever-worsening monsoon seasons in India where my my family and my ancestry is, and realizing that our generation will be the the first to witness climate destruction and, and, frankly, the last to do something substantive about it before millions and millions of people could possibly perish.
2: And a lot of the organizing you and your organization do is online. How do you go about translating that kind of online activism into legislative change, which happens in state houses, in in Congress, ultimately?
5: Our theory of change is predicated on two things. One is social science shows us that we need a critical mass of active, vocal public, people who are voting, who are donating, who are posting on social media, who are taking action in their communities, the other ingredient is political support. So we need a, a critical mass of enthusiastically supportive public officials. A perfect example is um, the Georgia election. We knew immediately that that winning the Senate or at least getting to 50 votes in the Senate was essential for the full scope of our, our vision on climate in this new Congress. So, you know, we made over a million calls directly to voters There were trainers who were 13 years old, who were training other young people on how to make calls to voters, people who will not be able to vote for the next three or four years, perhaps till the next presidential election. We can't just have a presence online. We have to translate that enthusiasm to on-the-ground organizing.
2: And at the federal level, we are moving now from an administration that doesn't care about climate change to one that does worry about climate change you know, a lot. How does that change what you do as activists?
5: Earlier in 2020, we were extremely concerned about the level of support that Joe Biden had from young people, which was uh, abysmal. And he was struggling to garner support after it became clear that he was going to be the Democratic nominee. And We were sounding the alarm Um, and to his credit, he actually invited us to be a part of crafting the solutions for the next administration. So I participated in a climate task force to define what the policy parameters around climate would be for Joe Biden's administration um, on behalf of Bernie Sanders. And many of the the suggestions that we made, he actually incorporated them as part of his Build Back Better agenda for how we emerge from this pandemic. And so he ran on that. And now as a result of, of our activity, and because we made millions of calls to voters and turned out young people, and because young people showed up at the polls, we're seeing that many of our priorities have become priorities for the Biden administration.
2: Last question, climate activism... I think is really hard, because you need to inform people that we don't have a lot of time. And yet, you don't want to make people feel pessimistic about the chances of success, because then we might as well, you know, give up and go home. So is there a story you can tell us that makes you hopeful that a meaningful pivot towards decarbonization can take place in America with its current political makeup?
5: Yeah. I mean, that's the crux of it. But in terms of of what I've seen as the concrete home, I mean, I think just the existence of Sunrise is enough. We have only been in existence for about three and a half years. Three years ago, um, climate was seen as a political loser. And now the president of the United States of America, his closing argument to voters was based on climate and environmental justice. Everybody believes that something is impossible until it is done. And I think the job of movements and young people is to say that we can make what was deemed politically impossible politically inevitable.
0: That was a great interview. Farshini is very hopeful and engaged and successful. And I'm curious... Why do you think Sunrise has been more successful than other environmental movements, especially over the past couple of decades? Is it the fact that we are in a crisis now and maybe we weren't before? Is it the fact the evidence has become more incontrovertible? Or is it something that Sunrise itself has been doing right, that other people did not do right?
1: Um, Probably all of the above. I think one thing that is important that's happened in the last decade, in addition to the changes that I listed before... is that um, the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, came out with this really big blockbuster report back in 2018, laying out the climate challenge and the urgency of action. And I do think not that many people read the report itself, but it made a big impact in terms of setting the scope of the problem into real terms that people could kind of wrap their heads around. And then the other thing that I think probably wouldn't be cited by the people at Sunrise, but I do think is really important in moving this forward, is that the costs of deploying clean electricity have really fallen. The costs of wind and solar have fallen by nearly 70 and 90 percent, respectively, over the past decade, and so that it seems more feasible than it did. It's not like it's this way out there idea that you can have clean electricity anymore. That's now become, quote unquote, the easy part, according to people like Bill Gates, who want to really ramp up investment in other kinds of research. And that as it becomes easier to deploy clean electricity, you see support not just from people in the sunrise movement, but companies, you know, big listed companies set their own carbon targets. They also are trying to reduce emissions. You have Larry Fink, the head of the biggest asset manager on the planet, BlackRock, asking companies to disclose how their strategies align with carbon neutrality. So it's not a fringe thing for seventeen year olds in knit hats. It's Larry Fink and Mark Carney, the former head of the Bank of England. It's the heads of very, very large, the biggest companies in the world, Apple, Google, et cetera, setting their own carbon targets, including big utilities. So it's it's very, very widespread.
2: I'm wearing a knit hat at the moment, but uh, <laughs> I'm also recording this podcast from an electric car, I'll have you know. So uh, I'm t- t- ticking all the cliches.
1: I guess the only question is what other kind of hat is there?
2: A Top hat, trilby, all sorts, flat cap. Uh, what was I going to ask? Oh, yeah. In practical terms, what does America need to do to decarbonize, right? On the one hand, it sounds kind of simple, you need to electrify everything. And then all of America's electricity has to be generated by renewables. But can you go into a bit more detail on how America would get to where it needs to go for the moment, you know, park the politics and and the fact that you need to get 60 votes in the Senate to get your ideal of a plan through? How would you go about... You know, decarbonizing America if if the country had a political system that better reflected what Americans actually want?
1: Well, the steps, I'm not going to talk about the policy mechanisms, but the steps are quite simple. So in theory, not in practice, they are to remove emissions from the electricity system. It doesn't have to be all renewables. And indeed, an 100% renewable electricity system probably wouldn't work very well because wind and solar is intermittent and you need things to balance their generation. But you need to dramatically lower emissions from the electricity sector with an aim to getting to zero. You need to have more stuff run on electricity. So cars and heating that relied on combustion of fossil fuels needs to instead be powered by zero emissions electricity. And then in the 2020s, what you really need to do as well is invest in a lot of transmission to carry uh, electricity from places that are generating renewable power to population centers. A big problem in Texas this week is that Texas's grid is not connected to that of neighboring states. So it can't import power when its own power generators fail. It can't import from Oklahoma or Louisiana or wherever it might be. And you need to invest in research because wind and solar power on their own can't do the job. They can do a lot of the job, but you also need both battery storage to store electricity on a short-term basis, so all the sunshine that is abundant in the middle of the day. If you store it in batteries for six hours, you can then use it in the evening. But you also need other types of really what's called firm or reliable electricity. And that could be from advanced nuclear plants. It could be from hydrogen that's blended with methane in gas plants. It could be gas plants that use carbon capture and sequestration. It could be biomass with carbon capture and sequestration, which is when you, you capture the emissions and then you find some way of storing it, probably in an underground reservoir. There are lots of different things that could help to fully decarbonize the grid. And there are also technologies that you would need to decarbonize things like the making of cement, aviation, which can't an airplane can't run on a battery. Um, and so, you need to ramp up research in those things, in some of that zero emissions, reliable electricity power, as well as zero emissions energy that can be used for some of these harder to decarbonize activities like aviation, shipping, huge trucks, cement making, et cetera. So, all that work needs to happen in the 2020s so that by the 2030s, you can really hit the ground running with deploying the technologies that work. At scale.
0: Let me ask you've listed a lot of things that need to happen, and Biden has this very ambitious climate agenda. If you had to pick the likeliest elements of that agenda to actually become law, what do you think is feasible in this term?
1: Well, one thing that's interesting, I think we're going to get into that in some more detail, but one thing that is interesting in Biden's pitch is that he really does talk about this as not just a way to transform America's emissions trajectory but also as a way to transform America's economy. And that is implied with the slogan that he chose, Build Back Better. And Gina McCarthy, who I interviewed for my story, is to domestic climate policy what John Kerry is to global climate policy. She oversees all of America's domestic climate work. And as Kerry said, you know, America doesn't have credibility on the global stage unless it can make action at home. So what she's doing is hugely important. And she really, really emphasized the jobs component in her interview with me. The scale at which you need to deploy clean energy over the 2030s would bring a huge boom in domestic manufacturing. Wind turbines, for instance, you know, a lot of that can be done domestically compared with solar panels, which are you know probably best produced overseas. Um, but then, in addition to the manufacturing jobs, you have a huge amount of employment in construction. So think about. All of those electricity wires that need to go underground in California, all those transmission lines that need to be built, the solar panels that need to be erected across the deserts, the turbines put up, not just across the plains, but along America's coastlines, you know, 100 or so miles off the coast, pretty far out there, the supply chains to support that work. Then you have all the work that needs to be done to make American infrastructure more resilient to climate change you know, rising sea levels in Florida, etc. And then you have research jobs, you have just a huge amount of, of activity here that could create employment. You also have the construction of all of the electric car charging stations. In addition, you might have a gigafactory here or there to produce electric cars themselves. There's a lot that can materialize.
2: All right, thank you both. While we're talking about electric cars, I should mention the Economist Asks podcast. This week, Anne McElvoy is speaking to the boss of VW, Herbert Deese. We have the best charging infrastructure build up in the United States. We have invested about two billion to build up a fast charging network, which enables you really to cross from north to south and from west to east coast. It covers the country better than Tesla's charging network already. We'll be back in a moment to hear from Senator Joe Manchin, whose vote will be crucial in deciding what gets done on all this. Charlotte, you've spoken to a lot of people for your cover story this week. But perhaps the most important one in terms of giving our listeners a sense of what actually might happen in Congress is Joe Manchin, the senator for West Virginia.
1: Yes, I spoke with the senator from West Virginia, and he's important for a few reasons. As I said, he chairs the Senate Energy Committee, and then he's also well-known to be one of the most conservative Democrats in the Senate, so his backing is crucial for any plan that Joe Biden would want to get through. It's clear that he supports government funding for innovation, and he's backed support for energy research in the past. But beyond that, it's unclear what type of climate policies he would throw his weight behind. And he points out that the government has had some support for solar and wind through tax credits, which has really given rise to a surge in solar and wind power. And it's not clear to him, at least, how much more support they need. So this is what he told me.
6: The United States has invested a tremendous amount of money. And with that, we were basically able to take a maturing industry into a full-fledged competitor, if not, low-cost producer. The only thing I thought was done wrong a decade or more ago when they start moving and moving all of our tax credits and incentives, they should have at least made a high priority for that money to be spent in the areas that lost the greatest amount of the traditional jobs, energy jobs, such as the coal miners and people that work in those types of industries. We can't leave people behind. That's why you have such a divide in our country
1: West Virginia, of course, is a big coal state, and he was very clear in our conversation that he doesn't see a future without coal, unlike most environmentalists.
6: we got the best metallurgical mines in the world. We make the best steel in the world from our coking coal. You have to have some base load. 2050, I think, is very doable, and it's not going to be doable by elimination. It'll be done by innovation. That's the difference. If you want to clean up the global climate and do it quicker than any, way, any other way, is, then have carbon capture sequestration. And if we can't find the technology, then it's our fault. I mean, this should be done and it can be done. There's just not been an appetite because there's been such a portion of our society that said just eliminate it. quit using it, don't mine any more coal, don't use any more coal. That's not going to happen, okay? So get into reality that we need to innovate our way through this.
2: Okay, Charlotte, let's get into what's politically feasible here. I think we've got a good understanding of what needs to happen. But clearly, there's a lot of politics getting in the way of that actually happening. I have to say, after listening to your interview with Joe Manchin, I felt pretty gloomy about the chances of very much happening in Washington. So I'm hoping you might be able to lift me out of my gloom. I mean, I'm gloomy because I think all three of us agree that it's unlikely that you get 10 Republicans uh, to get to 60 votes in the Senate for a major piece of climate legislation. I'd like to think I'm wrong about that, but I don't think I am. And so to the extent that the Democrats will be able to get legislation through Congress, it'll be through reconciliation, um, this arcane procedure that applies to finance bills and can be used once a year that allows the majority to pass some laws with a simple majority, so so 51 as opposed to 60. The downside of reconciliation, as we talked about last week, is that you're limited in what you can do through reconciliation. So a renewable energy standard, for instance, almost certainly wouldn't be able to be passed through reconciliation. And in reconciliation, you are very reliant on those marginal Democrats, people like Joe Manchin, Kristin Sinema in Arizona, for example, And it just seems to me that Joe Manchin doesn't want to do very much, Charlotte. I mean, he's happy, as you say, for the federal government to spend more money on innovation, but he really doesn't want anything that might further damage the coal industry.
1: It's interesting. With someone like Joe Manchin, how much does he just not want to disclose ahead of time before he needs to? There's something tactical here going on, right? If he said, you know, I want all this stuff. I sign up for a clean energy standard, which of which Biden wants 2035 zero emissions electricity. I'm going to invest in electric charging stations. I'm going to do all this stuff. Then he would give up a lot of capital. He knows that he's the most powerful man in the U.S. Senate and the person on whom all major policy depends. And so I think that you could see, I mean, the optimistic way to look at it is that he's just being shrewd and that he may actually give more than he lets on. The pessimistic way to look at it is that you have a man from a tiny state in West Virginia where coal mining and the broader mining and logging industry accounts for less than 3% of employment, and that directs all of climate policy for America. I mean, that's, that seems like a bad situation to be in, right? But there are a few things that I think could happen. One is that perhaps he gives more than he currently is willing to say. And then the second is that you actually could imagine a future in which you get something through reconciliation, which is not exactly what people who really care about climate would want, but does actually count as a huge leap forward, particularly if you were to even get one. You know, let's say Joe Manchin doesn't vote, then you get Mitt Romney perhaps on board. And I think I spoke with Sheldon Whitehouse, the senator from Rhode Island, who's not a lefty by any stretch of the imagination. And he has lots of conversations. He told me with Republicans who do, you know, he said there are about eight Republicans that he's talking to, eight or so Republicans who might move on this. And one of the things that Whitehouse sees as encouraging is how far the business community has moved. So ten years ago, utilities were kind of on the fence; they weren't really. Interested in throwing their weight behind a cap and trade bill, all kinds of broader industries were not setting these carbon targets. You didn't have Larry Fink banging on the door telling people to get with the program, and that now you could have the powerful fossil fuel lobby, which remains powerful, overwhelmed by business interests who many Republicans actually do speak to. So I don't think that it's worth entirely giving up hope.
0: I think your point about Mansion's shrewdness is a really, really smart one. I think that comes out too when he talks about the filibuster, right? And he says, over my dead body, will we eliminate it? But of course, you don't have to eliminate it entirely to make things easier to move. You can just keep carving out exceptions. So I think he takes these maximalist positions that sound good, you know, to voters in West Virginia, but I suspect there's more leeway there than you might think there is. If you had to guess whether Manchin is as adamant as he sounds, do you think he is? And what do you think the sorts of things he might support are?
1: Um, I wish that I could tell you that I looked deep into his eyes and I understood his soul in the course of our interview, but I really don't know. I mean, if I, there are a lot of people who want the answer to that question, but I think there are a few things that you can picture Biden pursuing in a reconciliation bill. So as John Prito said, it needs to be tax and spending measures. There's a lot that actually could fit into that. And there's a big debate over whether you could get a clean energy standard through reconciliation, essentially by designing it, frankly, more like a carbon price, where you have tradable emissions credits. This is not something that's so left field, I think it'd be hard. But, you know, one can imagine that potentially being part of a reconciliation package. But beyond that, you really could have investment into energy research into what that work that I described, the hard to decarbonize industries, cement steel, thinking about how to scale up hydrogen as a source of energy, how to think about um, decarbonizing aviation. You could have all that stuff be part of investments in a reconciliation package. You could also have a lot of infrastructure spending. So transmission lines, EV charging, on and on to support states and companies that want to pursue decarbonization. And I think a big question is, Within the Democratic Party, how does Biden craft a bill that satisfies both Bernie Sanders and Joe Manchin? And what I think is interesting is this idea, this lesson from the Obama administration is maybe don't play to the lowest common denominator. Don't play to the least ambitious version of what you actually want. You know, Gina McCarthy, when when you talk to her, she's kind of guns blazing, right, on what they're going to try to do through an infrastructure bill later this year. So I'll be curious to see whether they maintain that really ambitious approach, even as they pursue legislation through reconciliation, even as they try to deal with these different constituencies within the Democratic Party.
2: Charlotte, you've been writing about this subject for a long time, and you spent a bunch of time reporting this particular piece. What did you learn in the course of that reporting that you didn't know when you went into it?
1: Oh, all kinds of things. You you assume way too high a base level of knowledge One of the things that I found most interesting and that I hadn't really appreciated actually before is that America's political system is uniquely ill-equipped to deal with climate change, but its natural resources are actually quite enviable. So America, because of its size and the diversity of its landscape, is really well-suited to decarbonize. It has very long coastlines where you can build a lot of offshore wind. It has wide, wide plains in the center of the country where not that many people live, and you can erect a lot of wind turbines and continue to have farming beneath them. It has deserts with abundant sunshine, and you can have solar panels across the south and southwest. It has very, very well understood reservoirs where oil has been drilled in the past, or people have mapped out reservoirs in search of oil where you can sequester carbon dioxide. It has a lot of land for growing. Biomass, um, different kinds of new energy crops beyond ethanol. It has rich forests that can act as carbon sinks. So if you look at America just in terms of its natural reserves, in many ways, should be the envy of the world. It's just a question of whether our political system can get with the program and start to catch up.
2: Well, that's really interesting. Thank you, Charlotte. I feel bad about this because this whole podcast so far has been a quiz for you, but there's another quiz for you and for John Fassman. Coming up, the economists surveyed the motor trade for the first time in 1926. With characteristic perspicacity, we noted that the internal combustion engine has become a serious competitor of the railway locomotive. The paper identified Henry Ford as the world's largest car maker. He produced nearly two million Model Ts in 1924. That year, Ford also dipped a toe into politics he welcomed to his Michigan home a representative of which ambitious young leader? Um, Adolf Hitler.
1: So yeah, he was a fascist.
2: It was Hitler. You both get a point for that. A notorious anti-Semite, Ford is the only American who gets a mention in Hitler's Mein Kampf. Unlike his competitors, Ford did employ a large African-American workforce. He thought black Americans were less susceptible to socialist ideas than workers born abroad. In his determination to resist unionization, Ford also upped the minimum wage in his factories. But what was Ford's most enduring HR innovation, one that would transform the leisure economy? The assembly line, wasn't it?
1: The assembly line was a manufacturing innovation. I think he had a two-week oh. vacation.
2: Uh, Charlotte's closer. He introduced the two-day weekend on his production line. In 1926, Ford became the first big company in America to adopt a five-day working week. He believed the extra leisure time would boost consumption.
1: Who's the guy who wants a three-day work week now? There's some CEO. I'm ready to throw my weight behind him. Sorry, this is not constructive at all. Let's just leave it at that. Let's just cut everything. I'm just thinking aloud now and hoping for a longer weekend. (laughs)
2: All that remains is for me to wish you to a happy two-day weekend. Thank you, Charlotte. Thank you, John. Thanks, John. Thank you. Thanks also to the people who put this podcast together, our engineer, Nico Haufast, and our editor, John Shields. If you like the podcast, please leave us a rating and a review. And check out The Jab, The Economist's new podcast reporting on the global vaccination race. You can get in touch with us via email. The address is radio at economist.com. Thanks very much for listening. Stay safe. Stay safe. And stay sane. We'll have more Checks and Balance next week.